You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that in your mercies you've brought us together this Lord's Day. Lord, we are in need of your wisdom. We need to know, Lord, where our ultimate identity is, where, where, our, where our citizenship lies. And you've called us to live in this world. And you've also called us to recognize that this world is not our final destination. And we look around, Lord, even the prevailing tendencies of so much of our culture is heavily materialist. We don't think in spiritual terms. And I pray that you help all of us, Lord, to be open to the truth of your word that shapes us and directs us, Lord, to ultimate matters that have, that have finally to do with you, Jesus as revealed by the power of the Spirit. So do that work in our hearts and minds, even this morning as we look at Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes. In Jesus' name, amen. So can we talk a little bit about the book of Proverbs? Um, Proverbs is a good one. (laughs) And I think Proverbs is also a little bit of a mystery when you think about why a book like this is in our Bibles. That's This is one of the things, again, I, I... tease my students about this. This is another example of why I think the Old Testament's better than the New Testament. Um, I don't really mean that, but you know, I kind of do. Um, because there's just there's so much variety in the Old Testament that raises what you might think of as paradigmatic questions, paradigm questions. Why, why is this book even in here? Um, we'll talk about Song of Solomon, I think, at some point, maybe our last week together. Like, Song of Solomon is one of those books that would cause you pause to say, now, wh- why exactly is that book in our Bible? And I could see it as a part of, of, the, of the bard or the, or the literary history of a, of a culture like Israel, but why would it be canonical and viewed as scriptural within the Bible, a book like Song of Solomon? Now, I think something could be said very similarly about the book of Proverbs. Why would a book like Proverbs which is, in effect, practical guidance for living. Um, What does it mean to live life skillfully? I think that might just be a very basic pedestrian definition of wisdom. Living life skillfully in this world. Why would a book like that be in the the Bible? So, what are these Proverbs? What do we see here in the book of Proverbs? General maxims, one could say, about what it means to live life well in the world. And, before we kind of dive in, I think it's very important to recognize two features of the book of Proverbs. Um, The first feature is to recognize that the book of Proverbs is willing, and I'll use this, I'll, I'll steal this term, is willing to borrow capital, is willing to borrow wisdom capital from wherever it can find it. So I'm going to say that again, and then let's talk about this a little bit, because I think there are implications for this, even in the way in which we live in the world now. Wis- the, the book of Proverbs is willing to draw on wisdom from wherever it can find it. Um, this has been a bit of a shocker over the past 100 years in the discovery of so many documents from the ancient Near East that <laughs> had laid buried in the sand. And these documents have then sort of even arisen, or they've been newly translated. People have been able to figure out ancient scripts. And so we've lived in a fascinating hundred years of of scholarship, especially from the ancient Near Eastern world. Egyptologists. I have an Egyptologist that lives on the street where I I live in the south side who teaches at UAB. I mean, these are fascinating folks, right? So they've done a lot of work to break down some of the 
archaeological and textual artifacts of ancient Egypt. And one of the discoveries was the work of an Egyptian scholar or sage named Amenemope. Right? That's, a, that's not a great dog name, too many syllables, but I like, I like the idea of it. Amenemope. And lo and behold, the discovery of the wise sayings of, of Amenemope have an uncanny parallel in the book of Proverbs. In fact, there are many Proverbs that are almost carbon copies that you could lay right on top of our book of Proverbs that come straight from Aminamope. In other words, Solomon was a reader who had access, in whatever ways we don't know, but had access to the wisdom traditions of the ancient Egyptians. Because, and here's the, here's the other shocker, Aminamope um, was much older than Solomon was. So we're talking here about, I think, something like even 1300 BC is the kind of time frame I think we're thinking of here with the Minimope. So you, you see here, in effect, that Solomon was happy to draw wisdom from wherever he could find it. And that's, that's a sense in which, again, it's a call to a, to a life of thought and reflection and contemplation. Um, he did this. So they'll draw wisdom from wherever, but and that's, that's number one. Number two, and then we'll talk about this a little bit. Number two, the drawing of wisdom, the borrowed capital of wisdom from any culture around that happened to offer things that were truly wise or deemed wise, is all filtered through a religious or a theological lens. And that's why Proverbs 1.7 is so important. Proverbs 1.7 makes the book of Proverbs different from a minimope. In other words, it will borrow from a minimope, but it will contextualize the wisdom of the Egyptians or the wisdom of the Mesopotamians or the wisdom of the Akkadians. It might borrow from that, but it's going to contextualize it within the frame of, of Israel's view of God and the world. And that's why Proverbs 1.7 is so crucial, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's a claim about temporal beginnings. In other words, like the fear of the Lord shapes our understanding of wisdom itself. That's crucial. And what do we mean by fear? Well, let's stop and talk about that for a second. Fear in the Old Testament shares, I think, within a semantic family of terms that we would probably put underneath the umbrella of our English word, worship. Um, for example, Psalm 100 that we looked at last week, serve the Lord with gladness. That language of service um, is the language of worship in the Old Testament. To serve the Lord is to worship the Lord. To fear the Lord is to worship the Lord. Um, so fear here, I think in the context of Israel's life before God, is an understanding of what it means to live all of existence, and this is a classic um, theological term for me of the medieval tradition, subspecia dei, right? Under the eye of God. Now, so you have this understanding here that all of life is lived within a co cognitive understanding of God's presence and His existence. That shapes everything. And that is what fear is. I mean, I think fear carries all kinds of connotations within the Hebrew Bible, um, that we need multiple English words to get at. Awe, respect, worship, real fear. 
I mean, in other words, I think we kind of often soften that language of fear, out of, you know, in the way in which we talk about that term with our children. But real fear, an understanding of God's reality, if that is true, does have a constraining presence to it. There's a, there's a sense of an overwhelming otherness that comes from the knowledge that all of life is lived within the presence of God. So the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. And when I think of this in terms of beginning, I think of it in a couple of ways. Number one, it's the beginning because that's the starting point from which wisdom is to be understood. It's ground zero for for engaging life lived well under the sun. And number two, it's the beginning in the sense of the priority of the fear of the Lord and the shaping of the way in which we receive human wisdom. In other words, that's the discriminating factor that we use as Christians when we borrow capital from the world around us and the wisdom that it offers. It's all filtered through the lens, the critical lens of the fear of the Lord. Is this tradition that I'm receiving here, is this wisdom that I'm adopting here, is it consonant with a life devoted to the fear of the Lord as He's revealed in all of the Bible? So what you see here, I think, in the book of Proverbs, and it's not worked out, it's not fleshed out, I'm trying to flesh it out probably maybe more than I even should, but what I think you see here is something of the relationship between natural and special revelation. Natural revelation is a revelation that's found within the frame of understanding that God is the creator of the whole world. And he's left his imprint on the world in such a way that there are natural understandings of the world that draw from God's creative character and our creaturely status. And special revelation is God speaking in Jesus by the Spirit in Holy Scripture. That's, that's special revelation. And it's the lens through which natural revelation is to be received. So the point of this here is to say, even in our world, you think about this. I, I think it's why you want to encourage people to read broadly. You know, draw from all sorts of wells of instruction and wisdom. Um, and wherever you might find that. Um, I'm, 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 again, I'm caution people to be careful about allowing one particular voice to be the voice or the philosophical or, or, the, or the, the wise lens through which everything is received. In other words, you find your pet author and that's the person you read nonstop. I mean, I would, I would encourage against that. But I'll give you an example of this for, for me. I, I'm, I've, I've been somewhat drawn to the work of a, of a cognitive psychologist, boring stuff actually, named Jonathan Haidt. Have any of you read any of his work? H-A-I-D-T. Um, he's got a book called The Righteous Mind, um, which is an investigation. He's not a Christian, but he's thinking through why do people commit themselves to certain political and moral ideas? What's, what's the moral reasoning process of humanity as it thinks through the way in which it orders its political and its religious life? And why is there such fisticuffs on these things within our culture at large? It's a fascinating book, right? He also wrote another book, which I do commend, um, called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, which, was a, which is a play off of um, the famous book by Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. Now, it's fascinating. So, in other words, I think there's a call to read all kinds of things, to engage all kinds of ideas, but they are to be filtered through the lens of the fear of the Lord. Is what I'm reading here consonant with what God has revealed to us in His Word, or is it discordant with that? And that's really the call um, to wisdom, okay? So let me stop for a second, and because I have a few more things I want to say about it. But anything you want to press into on this? 
Hate, H-A-I-D-T. He's, he's a very interesting guy. Um, I, I, I like the coddling of the American mind. <laughs> but I'm thinking of this as an educator. Um, it's, I was going to say, that's why The Righteous Mind is a long book. The Coddling of the American Mind is not a long book. Um, and he co-authored that with another, with another author as well, who's a lawyer. Um, it's, it's interesting, especially in our current moment with the way in which the, there's a certain kind of language system that's being deployed within the American intellectual life that needs some thinking through. And I think he's, he's doing that in helpful ways. I mean, this is horrible. That book, The Calling of the American Mind, is almost one of those books where you can read the introduction and you can be done. I mean, I know that there, there are a few books that are worth reading cover to cover. Um, but I took a speed reading class with my son when he was in greatest thing I ever did. You don't have to labor over every word. I learned that. I mean, there are times you do, but it's all right. It's liberating, isn't it? Yeah, what was the what was the old book by Mortimer Adler? How how to read a book? I mean, he gives you these different styles of reading, and one of them is a kind of that skim sort of fast read. I took them down to UAB, and the lady, the teacher said, "Why don't you just stay?" She did. I like it. That's good. That's good. Powerless fall under here, both in a worldly sense and a spiritual sense. Power. Flush that out for me more, Dave. Well, recognition that God has all the power. Oh. We, we bring nothing, as the old saying, we bring nothing to the table. He has all the power. And that fear of COVID is a lack of, we yeah. feel powerless to right. defend ourselves against it. Right. But in a religious sense, that before God, yeah. we have power. Yeah, I mean, I think... I would have to kind of think through a little bit more of the implications of saying that because I think in an abstract way, that's certainly true. I mean, our our finitude in the, in, in the presence of God's infinite reach and otherness can certainly be described in terms of powerlessness. I also think, though, that the wisdom tradition is calling us toward a kind of human agency. In other words, it's not just a reflection of powerlessness that doesn't move toward agency in the sense that God calls us to make hard decisions in this world, to live into this world. And that's not always clear. I mean, by His will, again, we receive His power that enables and degrades or... Sure, certainly. To, certainly. To move forward. Yes, no, I, no I'm, I'm tracking you there. And most certainly. So in that sense, there's a kind of humble admission with the fear of the Lord that says, as I enter into life and seek to live wisely, I recognize that I can do so only in accord with the energizing, effective power of God at work in me. Yes, I think that's that's certainly true. Yeah, Miss Kathy. Uh, where he says the fear, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I've heard that, you know, but many, many, many. I think most Bibles will have that, but this this ESV has the beginning of knowledge. Now, the begin the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Is not necessarily wisdom. You know, so um, that, those two words kind of, you know, I'm just thinking about those two words in, 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 uh, in this sentence. Yeah, and, that, and that's, again, you know, I've heard these descriptions of like knowledge and wisdom being, you know, distinguished in certain ways. 
My, my sense is within the book of Proverbs, the language of wisdom and knowledge probably have a significant semantic overlap. Okay. In other words, I, I don't think I've pressed too hard the semantic distinction between wisdom and knowledge in this particular area. Okay. Although, I would say that understanding of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge is a really important theological claim that the church has held dearly. I think it's in the Bible, of course, but from Augustine onwards, in the sense that true knowledge can only take place when faith is presupposed. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's faith that leads to understanding, not understanding that leads to faith. And so it's the, necess it's the necessity of faith and belief on the front end of the thinking process itself as it engages the world, either by knowledge of God or knowledge of the world and wisdom. Faith is necessary in the front end to be able to navigate that, rather than faith being discovered along the way. And I would say that's been the, great, the greatest challenge to me of modernity. I don't think all of modernity is a bad thing that we need to just dispense with. Living in a pluralist society that allows us to go to church here on Sunday and the Islamic community around the corner to do the same thing, there's something beautiful about that from the standpoint of civilization. So, I, I mean, I get that there's a lot that the modernity has given us that's good. But one of the things that I think that it's given us that's bad is this notion that one can be neutral in its, in its, in its, in its approach to knowledge and understanding. In other words, I'm going to suspend belief. I'm going to put belief to the side so that I can try to come to the evidence itself in a neutral way. That, that's, that, I just don't think that that's a pos thing that we can do with any level of possibility. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I guess when I, when I think about that, one can know but not believe. You know. Yes, yeah, yeah. Although the scriptures, you know, the, the scriptures would be funny about that. In other words, I'm not sure, like for example, the book of Hosea is a book that understands that the culpability of God's people is their lack of knowledge. My people die for lack of knowledge. They do not know me. I'm not sure the Bible understands knowledge in a way that we might think of today as, as scientific knowledge, a detached knowledge, a depersonalized knowledge. I'm not, I don't think the Bible understands knowledge in that way. Knowledge is invested and personal. It's certainly cerebral. There's also that element of belief that and belief in. Um, I think both of those elements are, are within at least the kind of linguistic world of knowledge in the Bible. Um, that, again, a modern mind might make a distinction between knowing about something and believing in it. I'm not sure the Bible operates with that distinction. And, and you know, the medieval scholars had all these different Latin terms for that. You know, fiducia and um, intelligaria. I mean, so they, they, they had all these terms to kind of get at what the Bible does tend to kind of present as a, as a simple yet complex phenomenon. To know is to believe. Yeah. Um, can I say one more thing about Proverbs? I, I'm, I know I'm not going to get done with what I want to do today. But that's okay. We're having fun. I, I am. I don't know if you. I can't tell behind your masks, but um, uh, I will say that is the one hard thing about teaching with masks. It's hard to read a, a group of people. Uh, when I preached in, in church the first time I, a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago, with people had masks. I, I do not know. I, hello, Bueller? Uh, anyway, it's hard. Um, but I want you to see something else about wisdom in the sense of general maxims about life through one particular set of verses in Proverbs 26. I love this because I think this reveals something again about the character of the book of Proverbs. They're general maxims. These are not universals. I think that's really important. Th these, these proverbs don't necessarily come with the promise that if you do this, this then will be the result. 
It's a call to reflection. It's a call to live life wisely. And look at Proverbs 26, verse 4. I love this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Isn't that fantastic? And there are commentaries. They exist that say, Exhibit A of what you would call the textual corruption, ditography. In other words, what you have here is a, is a scribal corruption. They accidentally did the same line twice and they forgot a word. And you can give an explanation for how a scribe did an oops here. But here's the problem with that, that theory, that argument. There are no text, ancient texts, that suggest it. That, that's just an idea that's trying to deal with what seems to be something so obviously wrong on the page. Answer not a fool. Next verse, answer a fool. I love that this is in our Bibles because I think it tells you again something about the nature of what the book of Proverbs is. These aren't hard and fast universals. This is a call to a reflective life itself. In other words, if I can parse this out for you, there are times... When you need to do Proverbs 26.4, and you need to not answer a fool according to his or her folly, just keep your mouth shut. Um, I, you know, my wife reminds me of this verse a lot. You, know, just, you, don't, you don't always have to share your opinion. You know, sometimes you just listen. You don't have to dive in. And then the next verse says, but there are times when you should answer a fool according to his folly. You should challenge certain ideas that are continuing to be espoused because what? Look at the next verse. I mean, look at the way in which it follows up. Lest he be wise in his own eyes. So there are some times when people need a, kind of a little wake-up call that their own ideas... And boy, you think about this in the public. It's easy to cast aspersions here. It's easy to see the, the specks in other people's eyes on this issue here. I get that. get that. But we certainly live in a moment now where you do not see a lot of nuance in public discourse. Things tend to be treated in rather polarized fashion. When most of us here know, because you've lived some life, that reality is more complicated on the ground than we tend than, than our first instinct. This is one of the reasons I like the Jonathan Haidt book, Our Righteous Mind. We tend to have intuitions, and we tend to trust our intuitions. Um, did any of you read the book Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? That's a, that's another good. Did you read that one? No, it's on my list. It, it's, it's, it's a good one. Like for it being on your list. No, it's, it's I mean, yeah. Audible, by the way. I'm, I've become an Audible junkie. Um, Eric Larson's The Splendid and the Vile. Whoa. Have you seen this? All about church. Just fantastic. Anyway, um, we tend to have intuitions that we trust. We trust. And honestly, our intuitions are often wrong. I mean, you've been around people, don't you, who just say, I mean, as if it's a badge of honor, I tend to just trust my gut. Well, maybe you shouldn't tend to trust your gut. Maybe you should let your gut be in suspension for a little bit while you investigate or think a little bit longer about whatever it is that you feel like you've just seen that now you can render a judgment on it as if that's the final explanation of the cause that leads to whatever event. I mean, maybe some pause is needed here. So that's what I like about Proverbs 26, is that it's a call to a recognition that demands wisdom in life. And I think about this from the standpoint of so many facets of our lives. I believe without reservation that the Bible is God's authoritative word to us in the church that demonstrates for us the authority of Jesus in our lives and in our church. I, mean, I, just, I don't think 
I could have a higher view of the Bible, um, theologically speaking, than I just don't think it's. I don't still think it exists. I think so highly of the Scriptures. I love them, so that's how I even pay my mortgage by teaching it. So I love the Bible. So I can say that, and then also say, but aren't you frustrated about so many things in the Bible that it doesn't really address, that it doesn't really clarify for us? Um, I mean, and, and the list could just go on and on. I mean, think about how hard it is to think through certain ethical matters that the Bible doesn't just tie a bow on for us. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, I think just a, a low, low-hanging fruit here. Um, should you let your six-month-old cry it out? I mean, there are Christian parenting books out there that make really big spiritual claims about what's the right thing to do in that scenario. Should you let them cry it out or not? Um, What does it mean to execute discipline in the household with kids? Um, Should you let them drive when they're 16? Uh, Should a Christian participate in war? Is that is that a legitimate thing for a Christian to do? What about divorce and remarriage? And these, if you think that's an easy thing to sort through in the Bible, good luck. Um, so my point is, there's a lot of things in the Bible that it doesn't it doesn't tie a nice bow for us. It demands a life of wisdom, which requires the fear of the Lord, which requires the power of God's presence, and which requires an enormous amount of prayer. Because there are times when you should answer a fool according to his folly, and there are times when you should not answer a fool according to his folly. And it's not like the Bible says, see Appendix A for when you should do that. Right? That's not in there. It could be suspect if it were like that. Yes, I think so. I mean, this is the, the this is great, but this, this 4 and 5, it's, it kind of lends itself to, it's more of a, a genuine feeling of, of <laughs> than... than that's that it's, it's honest. Yeah, it's honest. It's honest. I think you know, for parents in the room, and I hate to use that's again, it's low hanging fruit. But I think you see it for you know, if you have more than one child, right? I mean, I see this. I, I've got a son. Um, I won't name him, but he he requires a two by four. I mean, that's just the way in which, and then he'll. Yeah, okay, I see that. But it's not like he's just quick to kind of take instruction and say, I think I'll put that into practice. Whereas I've got another son who is, who's got a soft heart. He doesn't require two by, he's just different. Um, I, and I was, I'm an only child, so I, didn't, I don't have any siblings, um, which might explain a lot of the, my neurosis. But, I, you know, I, I'm an only child. Um, you know, so th- this is new for me. You know, now Naomi, my wife, she's number eight of nine. So she, she, you know, she, she's, uh, she's got a little experience on this stuff. Um, anyway, any other thoughts on this? I mean, another classic one, right? Train up a child in the way in which he should go, and in the end, he will not depart from it. I, I guess I see this as more as the, you know, Moses was to the people of Israel. This is to the father to the son. Yeah. You know, the parents to the children. I guess advice. Yeah, yeah, and that, and I think that's definitely. The character of the book is it's shaped at the beginning. This is advice from a father to a son. Um, and and, I, and again, I think that sort of works itself out in all kinds of things that we do as parents as we're training our children. And really, the child that remains in us as we get older that still needs to be shaped by the instruction that's given here. Yeah. So I think the larger issue here is that's the promise of wisdom. It offers a lot. We want the people that we love in our own lives to be marked by wisdom. Um, and again, we, we want our kids to learn what it means to balance a checkbook. Um, you know, we want them to be active participants in 
in, their, in civilization in a way that's upbuilding and loving toward their neighbor. I mean, we want them to be good people who grow in the language of the New Testament in favor with God and with their, with their fellow humanity. Um, so that's the promise that I think we have here, that we're called to offer that kind of life lived under the sun advice for what it means to live skillfully in the world. But then there's books like Job and Ecclesiastes, right? So if you turn to Job, I mean, you don't really even... gotten so used to the Hebrew Bible I forget where Job is. It's before Psalms. After Esther, Esther, that's right. So what do we have in the book of Job? Now, just just so you know, there there are scholars who would argue I think this is wrong, that Job is a repudiation of the wisdom tradition that you have in the book like Proverbs. So there are those who would see the book of Job as an actual counter to the book of of Proverbs. I don't think that's the case. But I do think that the book of Job is a framing of the book of Proverbs or the wisdom tradition in a way that recognizes its limitations. Um, That there are limitations to the way in which wisdom is deployed in this world, especially when wisdom um, has the arrogance to move into the front seat of the car that belongs to God and God alone when it begins to render judgment about complex factors in people's lives or, or, or even in civilization, that really is within the realm of God alone to provide a narrative for these events or, the, or whatever, has, whatever cause has led to whatever effect. That's the realm of God's providence. Think, think William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. Remember the one line in that hymn? God is his own best interpreter. That's a wonderful turn of phrase. God is the one who can best interpret providence, and providence is typically only seen, if it's ever seen clearly, in retrospect, not prospect. Um, So here you have the book of Job, where, of course, we won't go through all the details, but Job's life comes undone in a moment. Um, We get this incredible view as readers of the book of Job. We have that kind of omniscient view of the events that Job himself, as a historical figure, never knew. I mean, if you think about that, we learn more about what's going on with Job and his life in the first chapter of Job than Job, at least according to the knowledge that we have, than Job as a historical figure or a literary figure ever had. He, God never told Job, by the way, uh, the, the, the great accuser, uh, the, the Satan, came into, uh, to give an account to me because he's responsible to me. And he came to give an account and then uh, we just kind of went back and forth about you and I just let him have action so that we could see what righteousness really looks like. Um, Which, by the way, I'm not sure that would have come as any comfort to Job. I wouldn't have wanted to find... You mean I was a part of a cosmic, divine chess match between you and the devil? I'd rather not know that. Uh, You keep that information. But Job never knows any of that. We do as readers. We have a view of the events that the characters in the story never had. I think that's fascinating. So here Job and his world comes undone for the events that you know in the first chapter led to it. His world is undone. He's remarkably faithful in the, in the face of incredible human suffering and loss. Naked I came from the womb. Naked I'll return thither. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can I curse God? He's given and he's taken. It's within his purview to do that. But of course we then know in the bulk of the book 
that Job's friends come along, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, and then this weird enigmatic figure, Elihu, toward the end of the book. They all appear, and they begin to offer Job wisdom. <laughs> all right? And this is part of the book that's like Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. There are things that Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz say that on the surface of it don't sound all that bad. It actually sounds like there might even be some proverbs that I can go and cite that sound very similar to what is being said here. Think about this, this verse, for example, from the book of Psalms. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed out begging bread. So that's, that's, that seems like a universal claim. You mean to tell me that the righteous will never lack bread to eat? That they'll never know hunger? I mean, all we need to do is begin to read about the first two centuries of the Christian church and the Roman Empire to know that that was not the case. So again, the application of these things into life is where the challenge comes. And these friends of Job's, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, they show the limitations of wisdom. Um, I'm stealing this, t- these terms from Brevard Childs. Brevard Childs says they are deploying wisdom in an unwise way. They're treating it as if, again, these are universals, that can, like white papers, that can be boldly applied as a position statement to any circumstance that arises in life. Job, you're suffering, and if you're suffering, that means you must have done this. And they apply it to him in this bold, depersonalized way that takes an omniscient view of the situation that's never their purview. This is why I think an enormous amount of humility and caution is called for pastorally for all of us when we're engaging other people in their suffering and their loss. I think we should have um, the brakes fully engaged before we begin to offer causal explanations for why X led to Y, right, or A led to B. Um, the book of Job is a classic example of its wisdom that's being deployed in an unwise way. Um, and that's why by the end of the book of Job, what do we see? We see Job having to make sacrifices and atone for his three friends. So the judgment, narratively speaking in the book, the judgment of God against the friends of Job become clear. And what's the point of the judgment? The point is, wisdom is God's gift to us to live in this world, but it has its limitations. There, there, there are some flashing yellow lights in the deployment of wisdom and the complexity of the human affairs of what it means to live life under the sun. And when we don't know what led to event whatever, then there is good reason for us to hold our tongues about offering those kinds of expo- causal explanations. So we see here again in the book of, jo- of Job the limitations of wisdom. And I'll just wrap it up with Ecclesiastes. We see something very similar with Ecclesiastes as well. Ecclesiastes is, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the time that we're in. I don't know, but it's, what a relevant book. It's like, it's like Ecclesiastes could have been written yesterday. Uh, it's, again, it's another shocker that a book like this is in the Bible. Here's Kohelet, the preacher, like, like you mentioned in the book of Proverbs, an old man at the end of his life who's in effect putting his arm around his son and saying, I, I've been around a little bit. Um, let, let me let me talk to you about some things. My wife and I were talking about this just this morning um, in our kitchen because we were having a sort of big sort of philosophical engagement with one of our children, and and I said, "Isn't it isn't it so fascinating about the cycles of life where you and I now?" Uh, so this is my wife. You and I now are the middle aged people, 
um, that have never thought about these new ideas, quote unquote, that this that the younger generation is engaging for the first time ever. Um, which, of course, we know is not true. Because I was like, don't, I was, don't you remember 20 years ago, you and I wrestling with the things that our son's wrestling with, thinking through, like, well, what do we do about this issue and that issue? And how does that shape our view on politics and America this or that? And he's thinking through all this stuff. And, I'm, and it's like, okay. It's like he thinks, and this is just part of the, maybe the cycles of life, he thinks he's the first one to ever think about these things. Right? Um, I think this is a sense in which what the, the ecclesiast, Kohelet, the preacher, is doing here. He's wrapping his arms around his son. He's saying, listen, um, I've been around the block. This, this, this isn't my first rodeo. Uh, I've, I've seen a few things under the sun. And let me, let me tell you about those things that I've seen under the sun. And then he begins to work through them. I'll suspend this, and we'll talk more about it next week. But here's the main thing that Kohelet sees in, in, of life under the sun. And it's, of course, in all of our translations. Vanity of vanity. Um, Hevel of Hevelim is the Hebrew. And what is Hevel? What does it mean? Um, Hevel is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that really the way in which you understand the metaphor shapes in large ways your understanding of the book. Is Ecclesiastes basically Albert Camus, you know, redux? Are we dealing here with a kind of existentialist literature of despair primarily? Lots of people in the church have read Ecclesiastes that way. I think there is a despairing element to the book of Ecclesiastes, but that's not the primary lens through which I read the book because I'm not sure that, I'm not convinced that's what the metaphor of Hevel is actually doing. Do you know what Hevel means if you were to kind of look it up in a dictionary? It means smoke, breath, vapor. Um, I was teaching down at a seminary in, in uh, Fort uh, Lauderdale, Florida, and Bruce Waltke, who's a bit like the Moses of Old Testament scholars in the evangelical world, he apparently had lectured on the wisdom literature the week before. And so I'm sitting in his, you know, in his lectern, and underneath it, there's an ashtray with a cigar butt in it. And I asked him, I said, well, what's, what's going on here? And they said, Waltke was here last week, and he wanted to demonstrate for the students Hevel. So he took out a cigar, he lit it in front of them, took a puff on it, blew some smoke out, and said, watch it, that's Hevel. It's here and then it's gone. So you, you all know enough about metaphors to know that the challenge with the metaphors is to know what's the point of contact that's being made. Well, what's the significance of the metaphor that's being deployed? Um, and I think, and again, we'll talk more about this next week, but I'll, I'll plant the seed and then we'll come back. I think the emphasis of the metaphor of Hevel as smoke or breath is not necessarily futility and absurdity, but fleeting, ungraspable, like smoke. Um, and understanding that things are ungraspable and fleeting in two ways. They're fleeting temporally. Our lives are like smoke. And this is Kohelet. I mean, you can almost sense that Kohelet is saying, I can't believe that I've blinked and now I'm an old man. Right? Here I am. So there's a temporal sense of the smoke, vapor character of our lives. It's moving fast. It can't be held. But there's also a sense in which Hevel of Smoke talks about the ungraspable character of the essence of what it means to live at its best, whether it's in our pleasure, whether it's in our wisdom, whether it's in our toil and our work. We all recognize that even in the best of our relationships, of the good things that God has given us in this world, not even the bad things, the good things that God has given us, 
that it's impossible for us to grab those things to their very core and essence and hold on to them. They're ungraspable. Um, Christmas morning comes, and then it's gone. Um, the evening out with family and friends is there, and it's special, and then it's gone. The night at the bluegrass concert or the classical orchestra concert, whatever music you like to go to, the, 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 the musical event is transcendent and beautiful and other, it's there, and then it's like smoke that's gone. The, the lights go up and you exit and you go out to your car and you go home. It's a recognition that both temporally and essentially, life's not graspable in the sense that it can be held and possessed. And, there's, and that's, that's, again, the limitations of what it means to be human in this world. So I'll plant that seed, and we'll talk more about that next week um, in light of Ecclesiastes as we move on. Okay? Any any final questions that you want to ask about? Yes, I do. Okay. Anything you want to talk about? Bat around. Ecclesiastes is a is a really. I mean, it's it's the kind of book that's open to so many different interpretations um, because. Uh, it can be read in such different ways, in, in ways that actually are, are not constant one with another. Um, but again, I do think it's interesting that the early church read the Ecclesiastes Kohelet primarily in terms of Jesus, who becomes embodied wisdom. He, he is now the, the true Ecclesiast, um, who helps us navigate what wisdom looks like in this world. Yeah? What is the, what's put forward is Job's guilt? What's he guilty of? Is, was this this wasn't just a game between you know, Satan and God. It, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is one of those things where if you could... And I guess I would lean on C.S. Lewis that you know, pride is the, the seed of all our sins, and so he must be guilty of some sort of self-sufficiency, pride, whatever. Liz? Satan accuses him of not having the fear of the Lord. But the first statement says he has fear of the Lord. Yeah. I think the challenge with Job is um, the distinction in person that we meet in the first two chapters and then chapters 3 through 37. But he does, you know, he recap, I long for the days yeah. when everybody respected yes. me. Oh, yes. I was a somebody. What, I think what happens with Job, and I'm stealing from Carl Bart here, I think Bart's got one of the best readings on Job, is that Job has, has come to encounter a God he no longer recognizes. Um, God's ways with him had, had entered into a predictable mode of being, which I think we all understand. We prefer that. Um, but the God who was his friend is now appearing to be the God who is his adversary. And I think it's Job's wrestling with that in the middle part of the book and his challenge to the righteousness and the integrity of God in the middle of it that's probably something, lays something, some claim to the, to the guilt that he, is, he enters into. Now, of course, God atones for him. So this is what's so beautiful about the book of Job from a Christian perspective. And us, exactly. What's so beautiful is God both accuses Job and justifies him at the same time. Exactly. And that's so beautiful. I mean, And you think about what's so wild about the, the end of the book of Job. All through that middle section, Job has been using legal discourse. I want my day in court. I want to prove myself before God. I'm going to bring my case because I obviously have a slam dunk case against God 
and his ways. And then what happens at the end of the book? Job gets his day in court. Here we are. Never mind. And he's like, he doesn't say a word, right? He doesn't speak. And what does God do? God reveals Job for who he is. He accuses him. You are a creature. I'm the creator. Where were you? In the, that's the first words. Where were you when the foundations of the world were made? Some of my favorite verses, right? Um, if, you, if you even saw Leviathan, I don't know who Leviathan is, but I know we do not want to meet Leviathan. If you even saw Leviathan, you would cower. I play catch with him, right? Um, so it's that kind of you know, creaturely other, creatorly otherness that God presents to him. So he shows Job who he is, and he justifies him at the same time. He makes him whole, um, which is, again, the character of our God, even in our own salvation. All right, Lord Jesus, bless us. Um, help us. You tell us in James if we lack wisdom to ask you, and you give it liberally. We need your wisdom, O Lord. Please give us your wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.